0: 32nd Canto. How could we have gotten this deep into Inferno, step by step, with our pilgrim Dante on this podcast, Walking with Dante. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and here we are at the opening of the 32nd Canto of Inferno, we have been set down into the final circle of hell, this icy place. We're going to learn a lot more about this place, but not in this podcast, because the first 15 lines of Canto 32 involve a lot of meta poetics in Dante's Masterwork Comedy, And we're going to just let him engage in them, and we're going to watch him do it, and we're going to try to figure out why he's doing it. This is my English translation of Inferno Canto 32, lines 1 through 15. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com. You can read along there. You can print it off, if you like, and make notes. And you can drop comments right from my website. So without saying much more about it, let's just read the passage. If I could write brutal and clucking verses such as would be appropriate for this sad hole on which point all the other rocks bear down, I would press out all the juice without stint from my conceptual framework. But since I don't have those verses, I bring myself to speak not without some hesitation. It's not something to be done in jest to describe the foundations of the entire universe. At least, not for a tongue that cries mama and papa. But may those same ladies help my verse who helped Amphion case Thebes so that what I say doesn't diverge from the facts themselves. Oh, you badly created things, the lowest of the low, who crowd together in this place where it's almost too hard to speak, would that you had been born as sheep or goats. told you it was going to be metapoetic about the inability of language to do what needs to be done here. Or maybe language can do it, but poetry can't. Is there a way in which... The poetic form, the rima, even, that Dante has invented for this poem. The very rhyme scheme and rhythm scheme. Is that what's stopping him? Does he here need to write in another way? It's the verses that are giving him so much problem. All of that is pretty complicated stuff. So let's just start up at the top and look at these opening 15 lines that begin our journey into the final pit of hell. It begins, If I could write brutal and clucking verses such as would be appropriate for this sad hole, on which point all the other rocks bear down, I would press out all the juice without stint from my conceptual framework. But since I don't have those verses... I bring myself to speak, not without some hesitation. Okay, let's just take this bit apart. If I, if I could write, it begins with a statement of I, and this is the poet speaking. It has to be the poet speaking because we are being told about the craft of poetry itself. So Canto 32 does not open with the pilgrim. It opens with the poet. And there's a reason why this might be interesting. This is the only Canto in all of Inferno In which Virgil does not say one word. In fact, we have entered the longest silence of Virgil. In Inferno. The last time Virgil said anything was back in Canto 31 at line 134, and he won't say another word, most likely. There's a problem here, but we'll get to it in the next episode of the podcast. Most likely won't say another word until Canto 33, line 106, a vast stretch of material. Virgil's longest single silence in Inferno, and the only canto in Inferno in which Virgil does not say a word. Perhaps that relates to that if I could write. By starting out with the poet, we're rather sidelining Virgil, pushing him out to the side in some fundamental way. Why is that? Is what's ahead of us treachery? Is treachery beyond the noble Virgil and his noble characters in the Aeneid? After all, he writes of the self-sacrificing and heroic acts of Aeneas and those who go on from Troy to found Rome. Is there a way this kind of treachery ahead of us is just beyond the conception of Virgil? Or let me put it another way. Do you have to be a Christian To recognize this kind of treachery. Now, I realize that you don't, you, you listening right now, don't have to be a Christian to recognize this kind of treachery. But is that something Dante is making a claim for? That somehow this is just beyond Virgil. We're also approaching the final floor of hell itself. We're told here that it is the foundations of the entire universe. We'll talk about that in a minute. Are we approaching the limits of what Virgil can know? Remember, Virgil's already given us his backstory. Go all the way back to Canto 9, line 27. And there you will see that Virgil tells the pilgrim that he has already been down to the final bits of hell that hold Judas, the ultimate traitor, the one who betrays Jesus. So we know that Virgil has walked this walk before, but is there some way that the foundations of everything are just beyond Virgil and beyond Virgil's capabilities? Or again, Does the poet, Dante, want to sideline the guide, Virgil, because the pilgrim is so important? And let me tell you this before we even get there, I mean, we aren't there yet, and I'm telling you a bit ahead. But Canto 32 is so much about the pilgrim. It is so much about the pilgrim's reactions, it is so much about the pilgrim's aspect, how he sees things, the way he missees things and then sees them clearly. It's so much about the pilgrim that maybe the poet needs to sideline the guide now so that the focus is almost entirely on the pilgrim. What is it that the poet wants? He wants to write brutal and clucking verses. And I translated that word clucking for a reason. It's a similar word used for Plutus. Remember Plutus who's standing there before the avaricious and he's doing the papa satan, papa satan alape. Gibberish. Do you remember this bit? It's in Canto 7, line 2. Well, it's said there that Plutus speaks with a clucking voice. It's this word. It's a different form of this word, but it's this word. There's something here that's tying this back to Plutus, to that kind of clacking, clucking, chicken-like voice. Ugly sounds. And I want to tell you that if you could see the medieval Florentine of this canto, of Canto 32, you would see that many of the rhymes are super ugly. It is distorted poetry. The rhymes are not (laughs) melodious rhymes. Instead, often the rhyming here is quite harsh and... I should note, he says, if I could write brutal and clucking, and the word there in the Florentine is rime, that it is rhyme in some way. But as Singleton and others point out, that word is actually used for verses, for poetry, for the writing of poetry, rather than just only the rhyme. So there may be a way that this entire bit is not about getting the rhymes right, because really, the rhymes in Canto 32 are quite ugly. Rather, it's a discontent with the poetic form. There's something so beautiful about the Trinitarian interlocking of rima The first and third line rhyme, and then they rhyme again as the second line of the next three-line stanza. And there's this Trinitarian interlocking. We talked about this a lot early on in the podcast. Maybe there's a way in which this is just not suited for where we're arriving now. Some place that is so desperately bad. Nonetheless, we begin with the limits of poetry. A lot of critics say the limits of language. I don't think so. I think it's the limits of poetic craft. And Here, we end at a place not of hope, but of despair. A despair, um, how do I say this? As if the despair of the last circle of hell has infected the poet in some way. Because what we're going to meet ahead of us in the ninth circle is unbelievable despair. I'm thinking of one particular long speaker, our last big, infamous sinner of hell ahead of us. And there is so much about despair. And it's as if this whole circle's despair has infected the poet writing about it in some way. I mean, here we are in this sad hole, as he says, on which point all the other rocks... Bear down. Now, Dante doesn't know anything about gravity, but he does know about weight. And we are coming way down in hell. In fact, Dante knows that the world is spherical. So we are coming to the center of the earth, given that all the weight of the rocks of the earth are bearing down on this center. And I always take this line, on which point all the other rocks bear down, as a little bit of sly metapoetics, too. Because I think by the time we reach the 30-second canto, we can feel all of the other 31 cantos behind us bearing down on us in the same way. We have come through so much territory, from neutrals to limbo to Francesca. Do I I have to do this list again? Chaco and Farinata. I mean, so much territory. Pierre de La Vagna, Brunetta, Latini. We have been through so much. Jason of the Argonauts. We've seen Bariters in pitch. We've seen hypocrites. We've seen Caiaphas stretched out on the ground like a cross. We've seen so much behind us. Mohammed, Bertrand the Born. Oh my God, Master Adam. So much. We can feel the weight of it. It's sitting on top of us now because we've been promised this place since Francesca. She is the first one to have mentioned this, some of the lowest bits of hell. We'll talk much more about Francesca and her relationship to this in future episodes of this podcast. But she's the one who says that the person who murdered us will end up in Caina, that is one of the circles of the ninth circle of hell, the sub-circles of the ninth circle of hell. We have got so much weight bearing down on us that the poet says, I would hope that I could press out all the juice without stint from my conceptual framework. Notice the violence involved in that. Now, we're talking about pressing grapes, right? So we're talking about a grape press, and we're not talking about an I Love Lucy thing where you get in the top and stomp around on the grapes. We're talking about an old-fashioned grape press in which you press the grapes between wooden planks and you screw it down. He would hope... That he could push all the juice out of that conceptual framework. And then comes the doubt. Since I don't have those verses, I bring myself to speak not without some hesitation. So much for challenging Ovid and Lucan with the thieves. Remember? That big challenge. Ovid never did this big. (laughs) Lucan never did anything this dramatic. So much for all that bravado. We have come to a place where the poet is stammering, is doubtful. And interestingly, this place is reached right after Virgil promised Antaeus that if he set them down on the final ring of hell, this guy, Dante, is alive and will keep your memory Up on earth fresh. In other words, Virgil promised the success of the poet. The promise of his success gets Antaeus to pick them up and put them down on the final icy surface of hell. And then the poet quails. That success is instantly followed by doubt, which is interesting in and of itself. Such a change of tonality, all within the first six lines. It's not something to be done in jest, the text goes on, to describe the foundations of the entire universe. And let's just stop right there. Remember, we're talking about a Ptolemaic universe, not a Copernican universe. So the earth is the center of the universe. We have not only come to the center of the earth, we have come to the center of everything, Everything rotates around the Earth, right? The sun, which Dante sees as just another planet. The moon, Mars, Venus, the stars, the universe circles around the Earth. And so we have come not just to the bottom of the Earth or the center of the Earth. We have come to the center of the universe. Dante sees the entire universe as spherical, All of those planets, the sun, I know the sun's not a planet, but, you know, for Dante, let's say it is. The sun, the moon, Mars, Venus, Saturn, Jupiter, the stars, they're all sitting on spheres that are rotating around the Earth. And, of course, those spheres rub against each other and make what is known as the music of the spheres. Dante sees this entire structure of the universe as spherical so if we're here, <laughs> we're at the middle of it. Where, where are we? we? We're at the very heart of the universe itself. And just think about this for one second. The very heart of the universe is the very lowest point in hell. Think about how that makes you think about the universe. The center, the core, the pit of the universe is the final ring of hell itself. But that's not all it says. It also says it's, you know, not to be done in jest, this thing of describing the foundations of the universe. At least not for a tongue that cries mama and papa. And the words there are so Baby-ish. It really is mama and papa in the Florentine. It is this really sweet, cooey baby language. We should hear that as such dichotomy. This innocent language of babies... Being used here at the front of the center of the universe, the center of all that's evil. Surely that affects how you see the universe, right? If you think the whole universe is structured around a pit of evil, then <laughs> then you have a very distinct notion of what the universe is. But I love the interplay here. I think the interplay is so crazy. The interplay between the Ptolemaic universe, the foundations of the entire universe, and baby talk. That interplay is so redolent. It's so beautifully stated. It's not completely explained, but we've come to the depths of sin, and against this, we're going to put baby talk, the hallmark of innocence. I wouldn't say it's irony. I would say it is a thing that we have talked about before in this podcast— gothic juxtaposition. That is this notion that on a cathedral facade, the virgin doesn't mean much unless you put her in context with something really bad. So for example, you put a demon under her foot or you put a demon nearby her on a downspout. And it's the interplay of the virgin and the demon that creates the meaning. You've put two things that are not necessarily alike together, and in the interplay of those two things, you have blown up the meaning entirely. And look, that's what happens here. It's not something to be done in jest to describe the foundations of the entire universe, at least not for a tongue that cries mama and papa. Can you feel the meaning open up? It's almost impossible to explain the emotional landscape that opens up inside describing the foundations of the universe, which are the final pit of sin. With baby talk. The passage goes on, but may those same ladies help my verse. We're going to blow right past these ladies for a minute who help Amphion. We're going to blow right past him in case Thebes. That's where we're going to stop. So that what I say doesn't diverge from the facts themselves. Thebes is the ultimate ruined city. We've encountered it several times already in Inferno. It is kind of the ultimate symbol of a city destroyed by strife, more so even than Troy. So much of the final circle of hell will be about Thebes. There are plenty of references to Thebes, Ahead of us, uh, particularly in the 33rd canto, Thebes becomes a touchstone reference for this place, which is the final domain, we've already been told, of Lucifer, of Satan. Antaeus has let them down into Satan's realm. And this is his, what, the keep of his castle. We could say that Satan's castle starts. All the way up at the walls of Dis, remember, with Medusa and Virgil Stymied and all that stuff. And then coming through the messenger, coming down from heaven, blowing the gates open, and then coming through the gates of Dis. We talked about the the concept of uh, hell as a civic place, a city. Well, those are the walls of Dis, the walls of the city. Now, we've come down to the keep. It's even got giants around it. We've come down to the final inner place inside the city of Satan. Here at this place, it is constantly being described in these last cantos of Inferno as Thebes, a warning sign that it is a place of ruin. But not at first. At first, Amphion enters the poem. So let's go back and look at those ladies and Amphion. Dante the Poet says, May those same ladies, and here he's speaking of the muses, may those same ladies help my verse who helped Amphion in case Thebes. This is the second invocation in comedy. We had an invocation all the way back in Canto 2, and it was straight to the Muses. Let me remind you, in Canto 2, line 7 through 9, this is the first invocation. I'm reading you the Anthony Esselin translation. O Muses, O oh Geniuses, help me now, O oh memory that engraved the things I saw, here shall your worth be manifest to all. In that first invocation, the muses are invoked to make his memory secure. This second invocation is different. Here, he's asking the same ladies, muses, who helped Amphion encase Thebes. Here's the story. Amphion... Is a singer, famous musician, a mythological musician who played so well that the very rocks of the world would move while he played. Amphion, in the story of Thebes, plays so well that the rocks of the earth move and come together and form the walls of Thebes. Dante here is asking for help in building the final city of Lucifer. Notice that the first invocation is to the muses in general. Help me with my memory. Notice that the second invocation, there are seven in all of commedia but let's say now the second one is not necessarily to the muses, but to a poet-singer who the muses inspired, there's a reference inside of this to another poet who built the walls of Thebes, or another artist, let's say, a musician, who built the walls of Thebes, the ultimate ruined city. Benvenuto, one of the earliest commentators, says Dante must join rhyme to rhyme to wall in the city of hell. I don't think that's what this is about. In other words, Benvenuto's point is Dante is asking for help in order to build secure rhymes so this part of hell doesn't run amok over the rest of the world. I'm not sure. Sure, it does say encase Thebes to hold it in place, to close in Thebes. But it does strike me that it's about construction. It's not just containment. It's also the building. And so this is about finding the right poetry that can describe this. And Amphion's act of building Thebes is a heroic beautiful act that Thebes became a fallen, cracked, crazy place is its own fault. There does seem to be this way in which the poet is hoping to be able to find the right words that will perhaps encase the final city of hell, but more than that, will build it I need to find the words that will make this place happen. And notice that the words then are rocks, which brings us back to that bit about all the rocks, the point on which all the rocks are bearing down, which brings me back to my point of Canto 32 is feeling the weight of the 31 cantos before it, which, <laughs> which brings us all back round circle to words as rocks. It's all circling back on itself. The passage ends, oh, you badly created things, the lowest of the low, who crowd together in this place where it's almost too hard to speak, would that you had been born sheep or goats. The reference here is to the Gospel of Matthew 25, um, verses 31 through 46. And in this bit, Jesus basically says that the Son of Man is going to come back, going to judge the earth, and going to separate the sheep from the goats. And the sheep are going to go to their grand reward. It's a vision of the last judgment. And the goats are Going to essentially be burned up and they're going to receive the full wrath of God, the Son of Man is going to separate the sheep and the goats. Well, this is a little bit of an ironic statement here because of anybody ever, the people ahead of us in the ninth circle of hell are the goats. I mean, listen, in a Christian context, everybody in Inferno, with the exception of Dante the Pilgrim, is a goat. (laughs) <laughs> they're all the damned. Okay, not that divine messenger who comes down before the walls of dis, but everybody else is a goat, whether they're the demons harassing the damned or the damned themselves. These are all the goats. This bit here, that you had been born sheep or goats, does seem to be about sentience. Like, uh, you've done such bad things would that you had only been born an animal, not a human with an intellect. Because remember, we've been told that when intellect is added to great power with the giants, horrible things can happen. Well... Here, intellect has been combined with malevolence in the people ahead of us, and so it is a particularly disconcerting place. And the claim is, gosh, you should have just been born an animal because you couldn't have done this much destruction. But it's put in the language of last judgment from the Gospel of Matthew. So the Dantean irony is in full swing here. We're calling forth the last judgment. We're looking... Surely, at the goats themselves, and about to see the goatiest of the goats ahead of us. And yet, at the same time, they were born sheep and goats, which brings us back to that problem of the words badly created things, lowest of the low. As I've told you, that is an incredible theological problem how can you be created bad? If you're created bad, then God can make a bad thing, which is not possible in Christian theology since God is good. So it seems to me that the poet has finally decided to just let the irony of evil settle. Yes, evil is an action, Yes, evil is born of choice in Inferno. This is completely Dante's theology that evil is ethical, not ontological. That is, it is a choice, not a state of being. And yet, at the same time, some people just seem so bad that they were born bad. It's that Hitler problem, right? Even if you're the most liberal person in the world, once you approach Hitler You think to yourself, wait a minute, somebody really is bad. I mean, there really is an immoral force. I've said this a million times in other places in my life. Without a doubt, (laughs) I'm a little off topic here, but without a doubt, the Holocaust is the death of relativism. It has to be. No one would ever claim that a relativistic morality could make sense of the Holocaust. It is immoral, period. There's no other way to see Auschwitz or Treblinka. It will kill your relativism every single time. Coming back to the poem, we can see that evil can be so bad that even though you desperately want it to be an ethical matter, a matter of choice and behavior, some people just seem to be born really bad, just seem to be born sheep or goats. I mean, who made the sheep and who made the goats? It has to be God. So in that parable, in that passage from Matthew, it's God who makes sheep and goats. So didn't God create the goats? And yet they're the ones damned. How does God intentionally create something bound to be damned? That irony of ethics and ontology is found in that Matthew passage, and it's found right here. Let me draw out two further conclusions from these first 15 lines. One of them bears on what's ahead of us, and one of them doesn't. So, sorry, I'm going to tell you a little bit of the plot to make this bear in on us. But I think it's a really interesting point. It's a point brought up that I first saw it brought up by John Aaron in an article on the 32nd canto Amphion and the Poetics of Retaliation. In this article, Aaron claims that Dante's frustration here with poetry, Dante's frustration with finding the right poetic form ultimately causes the pilgrim frustration. And Dante, the poet, works out his frustration with his poetics in the canto ahead of us, in the person of the pilgrim. And the reason I tell you this, and this is the bit of the plot I have to tell you, is that the pilgrim is going to do physical violence against some of the people ahead of us. Aaron's point is that Dante's frustration at his own limitations will be taken out on the damned in the canto ahead of us. I find that explanation so incredibly Interesting and provocative. We'll talk more about it when we get down to the actual scenes of violence. There's a long standing critical tradition for why the pilgrim engages in violence at this point in the pit, but it may be that Aaron's point could hold that the poet's mm, recognition of his own limitations as a poet causes him to work out his frustrations on the damned in the person of the pilgrim Dante. Here's the final point, and it comes from Brunetto Latini, and it doesn't involve any of the plot ahead of us. In the tresor, in book three, right at the very start, Latini makes an incredibly interesting claim for us. He says Cicero—he actually says Tully, but he means Cicero—Cicero says the greatest science of governing cities is rhetoric, which is the science concerned with speaking— Without speech, there would be neither cities, nor stable justice, nor an established human society. Latini's claim is that rhetoric is the foundation of the civic order. And we are about to come amongst the traitors, the treacherous, the people who have broken all civic bonds. And isn't it interesting that here, as we enter this landscape of the traitors, we have the poet saying language is impossible. Well, if we take Latini's point and we say that Dante knew Latini's point, then we have to say, hey, look at this. In the place where language breaks down, that's the same place in which the social order is going to break down through treachery, through traitors, people who, who murder their kin who destroy the state, who destroy civic order, people even who take advantage of guests. (laughs) Yeah, it all comes down to that. Who take advantage of guests who enter their home and rely on their goodwill only to discover themselves murdered, raped, set upon by their hosts. That's where we're all going. People who break the bonds of trust in a traitorous way. That's the place at which Latini claims society would collapse if there were no rhetoric. In a canto then that starts with Dante complaining about the flaws involved in rhetoric itself. That was a lot to say about a metapoetic passage from the 32nd Canto, but you know once it hits metapoetics, I'm going to go crazy with it because it's my favorite part. You know that. To find out more in the next steps, please subscribe. Please rate this podcast. It would really help. For you to drop a comment in the comment section on Audible or Apple, just a great podcast would do wonders. Thank you for that. Mostly, though, thanks for being on this journey because it is a wild journey and we are approaching the culmination of the first canticle of comedy. I can't believe it. I'm already thinking about purgatory. It's still a long ways ahead of us. Let's take our next steps down here in the ninth circle of hell on the next episode of Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. Keep those snowshoes on.